income is always underreported in these businesses because the guys take cash. I mean, it's just, if you're running a four or $5 million a year scrapyard, you're scraping some amount of cash out of that business from some guy somewhere and some commodity because that's just how these guys are. Welcome to the Small Business Mentor Podcast, where we shine a light on the black holes of business growth with your host, Alan Pence. In each episode, we explore the leaps and bounds entrepreneurs make as they push their businesses beyond the 1 million mark into the realm of professional sustainable growth. Stay with us as we navigate the journey from brute force to finesse. Welcome to Small Business Mentor. We have a uh, Sam Bacon, Green Circle Demolition. All right, so tell me about your breakfast. What, what was it? I was having breakfast with a guy that he's 40, going to turn 41, and has just, I mean, he's a he's a scrappy guy, but I mean, he's just, he's he's failed a lot of failure in his early... Uh, in business, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he messed around. I mean, I, I sort of ran into him through YPO, but he was in a demo business for a while, failed. He was in sort of the commercial real estate, kind of bad timing, failed, was, did, you know, did a, a land, an original landscape business that kind of didn't work out and then figured it out and got it. I mean, I mean but he's just... Did he start them or buy them? I mean, both. He's failed his way up somehow. I mean, I got to give him a lot of credit. I mean, he's, you know, he's really... He stuck with it, and I mean, he's he got into YPO. He did, yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I was taking some notes during breakfast because I guess when you fail frequently and whatever, like you, you start to kind of step back and look at like, all right, well, what you know, statistically, what's going on here, right? So he's he was sort of rattling off like, you know, everybody talks about half of small businesses failing in five years, but you know that seventy percent fail in ten years. And I was like, I didn't know that. Uh, that's even higher. You know, he's like, yeah. I mean, he's like, I mean, most people are failing. You know, and I was like, yeah, that's uh, that's true. So he probably has some battle scars he can teach people, right? Yeah, no. I mean, and you know what? I mean, he's uh, you know, he's running a a successful landscape company now that's, you know, good. You know, I think you got to figure it out that the value is in the recurring rev model. He's sort of cut out all the construction stuff. He's buying companies, right? He's sort of, I mean, he's, you know, he's doing the right stuff now. And I'm, I'm. Well, that should be inspiring to our search brothers out there. He did over a decade of pretty consistent failing before he kind of found something that he could. Uh, I think I need to have this guy on the pod. That sounds perfect for me. Yeah, no, nah, he'd be good. I mean, dude, really, I mean, adopted, really interesting, like whole, like, you know, startup story he, and he's a very uh you know he's a very transparent guy so he'd be uh, he'd be somebody worth talking to all right tell us about the demo and scrapyard business how'd you get into this what is it how do you make money out of this so the demo business is a very tough to exit kind of income producing milk the cow deal right i mean there's no real recurring element to it outside of your customer base which is relationships and low pricing and all those stuff. So, I mean, the, you know, everybody wants to differentiate on service on whatever, but it's like, at the end of the day, it's tough. And the companies are out there buying other companies are not particularly excited about, you know, non-recurring rev models with big contract fluctuations, with large receivable balances, with expensive to fund growth. I mean, it's just like everything private equity seems to look for, this sort of checks the other side. And it's all like what, you're taking down some commercial thing. Commercial industrial buildings is all we're doing. And, you know, well, you know, if like you or a friend, we tear your house down for you just for, so your son could come play on the excavator or whatever, but it's, there's no real money in the, in the residential side of the business. That's kind of a, that's just a, a nothing deal really for us. So there's that piece, you know, we got started in that kind of doing more like interior 
selective demos. So if you, you know, if you go to a strip center and you want to put a restaurant in and there used to be a nail salon, we'd tear that out for you. Right. So we kind of got, we started there and we started doing asbestos abatement. That's a, that's a high margin part of the business. It's obviously they're not putting out new asbestos so that there's less and less of that business to do every year, ostensibly. It, although I'll tell you when I got into that business 10 years ago, people were saying, oh, there's 10 to 15 years of this left. And I just left the conference middle of this year and they're like, oh, there's 10 to 15 years of this left. So it's like, I don't think anybody really knows. So we're going to keep doing it until it runs out. And there's other environmental stuff, like sort of once you become an environmental contractor, that's a very broad umbrella, right? Like, oh, do you do mold? It's like, well, I'm certified to do mold. We don't do a lot of it. We're an environment. Hey, will you haul away this contaminated soil? Yeah, we can do that. We're already there. So it's like that umbrella of stuff being a environmental remediation, all those kind of things, it, it, that, that can mean a lot of different things. And there's sort of generalist players that do a lot of stuff. And there's guys that just do mold in Florida, right? There's a lot of mold in Florida. That's all they do. And so it's, there's a lot of niche kind of environmental stuff. Is it like, once you get the insurance for doing all this crap, you might as well just do it all? Pretty much. Then you, yeah, you get, you go take some classes, get a license depending on the state. And then you are an environmental contract. How risky is it? You know, there's a long tail in the workers comp piece. So you're taking real risk on, you know, sort of, you've seen the mesothelioma commercials and all like that. I mean, that stuff's real. No, and nobody really knows how much asbestos you got to breathe to get asbestosis or some of this other stuff. So there's, there's those risks, but I will tell you the bulk of the stuff that we're remediating is stuff that contains between one and 5% asbestos by content. So you kind of got to work in a fairly well ventilated area to, to have one to 5% be something that's really, it's it, the, the, the concentrations of the actual fibers themselves are in the materials that are still remaining to be abated are pretty low. The reason that we make a lot of money on it is because there's a lot of perceived risk because of exactly what you're saying. But the real physical risk today, you know, you, you use sort of your protective measures and you can mitigate a lot of it. You can get pretty comfortable with it. We took out a old like, coal, I guess it was originally a coal fired furnace at a house in like 1910 house in D.C. And when they came in and said, oh, there's asbestos, it was like this team. It was like E.T., like the guys who came to get E.T. came in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and again, that's why, you know, you probably paid $15,000 for them to do that. It cost them six. And, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, but there, the insurance, the pollution insurance, all the, you know, all that stuff is, you know, I don't know where your insurance costs have gone, but ours, have, you know, the last three and a half years, ours have almost doubled. And, you know, we joined a captive, which we could talk about. That's, a, that's something that if you're in a higher risk business and you're pretty good at managing your risk, Let's put a pin in that. I'd like to talk about that because you're joining a captive that other people got together or something. Yeah, it's a, this is a group captive. There's a lot of different kind of, I'm not an expert on it by any means, but there's, you know, there's some different structures for different size companies. You got to have a certain amount of premium dollars to make it make sense. But when it does, it is a long-term plan. You need to plan on being at a minimum of five, really more like 10 years. But you know, at the end of the day, if the captive manages their risk well, you manage your risk well, starting in year five, you're getting premium dollars back that you put in because you're self-insuring up to a certain level, essentially. It's a nice way for you as a business owner to sort of put away a few hundred thousand to a few million dollars a year that has the potential to come back to you half a decade later. And, and it's, something that, it's something you're paying for anyway. So you're deducting it 100% on the front end, and then you're bringing it back at capital gains rates five to seven years later when those policy periods are closed out. But you're taking the risk of the collective captive, right? So like, what if you have a bunch of dumbasses like not running their business? The thing with the captive is they can only, obviously, so you're out, you have 
a sort of first dollar risk you take, right? Hey, I'm going to they underwrite you based on how an insurance company always underwrites you with like, hey, how much risk do we see based on your loss history and all this different stuff. But at the end of the day, if your captive has what they call a frequency problem, where like there's just tons and tons of small claims that are happening all the time, it can blow the whole deal up. If you have a severity problem that's not terrible, that's sort of why you have insurance, right? A couple of big claims a year, you feed into your insurance reinsurance layer, everybody chips in a few bucks and you kind of move on. But if you start having, you know, just tons and tons of claims and it's expensive, there's big collateral requirements, you know, it's, you need to be committed to, to doing it for the, you know, medium term. But yeah, it's, if you're in a high risk business, their their captive their group captures out there it's something that you should definitely explore i was thinking about it because i was talking to this guy about cyber insurance you know like a bunch of stuff you know people getting money stolen from them and like basically all the policies now have all these riders that like if you go into them basically you're not going to be able to make a claim so like he was educating me on that and i was like oh maybe we should all just do a captive and like make it but you got to have the captive the captives got to like crawl up everyone's ass and make sure they're doing stuff one out of every $3 ish is just going to like fees and brokers. And I mean, it's a fee heavy game. AIG gets paid 5% to put their name on the page. The running carrier, they just, it's 5%. You want to put our name on that piece of paper? It's going to be 5%. You're like, man, it's a lot of money just to. That's what a federal guarantee does for you, huh? Yeah, that's right. All right. So tell us about, so the other part of your business, right, is uh, scrapyards. Yeah, so the demo and the scrap business, that you know, they sort of go hand in hand, like anywhere from 10% in the bad year to 20% in the good year of our gross revenue on the demo side comes from scrap. So I come to tear down your building and 20% of the stuff in there is actually paying me money. It's copper, aluminum, steel. The, the biggest chunk of that for us is steel because that's the heaviest, largest building components that we're typically recycling. But so, you know, I sort of learned the scrap business through the demo business. And I actually officed in a scrapyard when I started the demo business and worked some there and like learned a lot more about the scrap business. And, you know, the scrap business is a, there's sort of three models uh, that I see people kind of running. There's the broker model where it's just asset light. You're just in there. You've got relationships in Asia and you're aggregating material. It's high volume, low margin brokerage, right? Like just we're shipping loads to Taiwan. They're taking apart motors by hand. I can pay you a little bit more than you're getting here and I'm going to make a small spread. So those guys are just literally sitting by a phone. They may have a small warehouse somewhere where they consolidate stuff. So that's sort of the one exporter broker model. Then you have the processors. These guys are manufacturers in reverse. They're trying to sell pure chemistry to end users. So they take a car and they, you know, they break that car down through their shredders and their non-ferrous recovery processes. And they end up with steel, aluminum, brass, copper, all these different elements. And they're trying, the purer you get that, the higher, the higher the dollar you get. So you're, you're getting a premium for breaking down a product into the purest chemical element you can break it down into. So there's guys that do that. And then there's guys that are kind of like us that are mid-level aggregators. So we're, I sort of think about us as kind of Amazon in, re, in reverse. Amazon sort of buys wholesale, sells retail, and we do the opposite. We buy retail and sell wholesale. So you're, you know, we're getting a premium for aggregating and upgrading materials from the general public and, and sort of consumers. We're moving into the processing, and this is something that I didn't really want to do because I think the trap a lot of people fall into in the scrap business is they try to do a lot of different things well. You want to be a good broker. It's hard to be a good broker, a good processor, and a good sort of customer service driven 
mid-level aggregator of, of scrap at the yard level. And there's a lot of guys that try to do it all. And I was sort of trying not to, but been a ton of consolidation in the scrap business, especially in the Southeast. And we're just running out of end markets to sell our shreddable material to at a spread that makes sense for us. So we're having to take it in-house and vertically integrate to sort of maintain margins and support our business. It's been an interesting shift. I mean, we, when I got into this business, 2015, we opened our first scrap yard. You know, we had about six people that were competing for our Ferris, our, you know, sticks to a magnet scrap. And now we've got two, you know, there's been a lot of guys that have gotten rolled up and it was a good, you know, money was cheap. Some guys came out of California and they own about 85% of the Georgia market. Now they bought the biggest recycler in Georgia and then proceeded to buy sort of like the second biggest and the third big, I mean, they've, they've sort of bought almost everyone. They control this more. I mean, it's like almost at like an antitrust level locally, you know, where you're like, good Lord. I mean, I mean, they, so now you're starting to do it yourself now. We're installing the equipment now. And I mean, it's not something that I really want to do, but we were making about a 50 or $60 spread on our Ferris materials. And now we're making, you know, some months less than 20 and we just can't operate at that margin. And it's really these big guys have come and kind of made it a one price market is what they've done. They're paying me, you know, anywhere from 15 to $20 a ton more than they're paying a guy that brings them one lawnmower. So I'm just not getting any premium for volume with those guys anymore. They don't need it. And they don't care. And they've already got the units and they sort of control the market. So it's, it, it just, it pushes you. The whole game with recycling is you're trying to, you know, it's, it's all about what you paid for the material. Right. And then after that, it's like, Hey, what do I know? that that I can do with this material either with people or equipment but the guy I bought it from can't right so like if I buy a car from you and I shred it like you can't do that right so it's like I'm getting the premium for liberating these different materials that are all combined into one car and you can sort of look at that up and down the line of like what what equipment and what processes and what knowledge do I have to upgrade a material to a higher level to sell it and you want to be selling as pure a, a product as you can possibly sell. And and in the end, like I sit next to you in our little masterminds and you've got like a commodities screen up, right? Like, so you're basically like a commodities trader, half a commodities trader, half a intake. It is. So the, the thing that's hard for us is yes, you do want to kind of have visibility into the markets and kind of know where things are going. So you, but we, we really try to match our buy and our sell monthly. So if I buy two, 3,000 tons. I want to try to sell two or 3,000 tons. I'm not speculating a lot. Now we have the material, right? We own it. And so we have a physical hedge in the margin that we have in the material itself. And so if, like, if I think that the war in Ukraine is going to, going to settle up next month and there's going to be a big demand for rebar in Europe as a result of that, maybe I hold back 20 or 30% of my package and try to see if the market spikes next month, you know, but it's like, those are all sort of global speculative. I mean, and the metals market is a global market, you know, I mean, there's just, there's stuff and it used to be things happened and it moved markets. Now people say things like, Hey, we think that China's holding, you know, a third more copper inventories than they're reporting. And it's like, well, does anybody know that? And it's like, nope, but somebody said it in the copper market drop, you know? So there's a lot of this sort of speculative information that kind of drives these markets. I mean, you probably saw this, but you know, the LME just basically, you know, canceled two days worth of trades in the nickel market because they didn't, they didn't like the, but, well, the China, the, the huge China guy, you know, like the guy in China got squeezed, right? I mean, they basically couldn't come up with the physical material to meet the contract. And I mean, they were just like, well, we're just, 
things got a little crazy. We're canceling those trades. And it's like, well, that's, you know, and I think JP Morgan just lost or one of those big commodities houses lost a big lawsuit on that. Oh, really? I'm following the lawsuit. I knew that they were soon. All right. So talk about scrapyards. So one of the things I liked about them is like, like no one wants a scrapyard in their town, right? So like you've got this like regulatory barrier, right? Yeah. The zoning piece is really your biggest barrier to entry in, in the game, right? So our expansion has been buying either salvage yards that are doing auto recycling, you know, like a pull apart type deal because they have the zoning and it's grandfathered in or buying an existing scrapyard because you just, I mean, it is almost, you know, there, there's two reasons that I think it doesn't make sense to go through the headache of trying to greenfield. One is what you're talking about, sort of the regulatory nimbyism, all that kind of stuff. But the other thing is, unless you just have the hottest corner and there's just no service and no, I mean, you've got to get the customers in there. And for the multiples that these businesses trade at, you can be making money the day that, that the ownership transfers if you pay for it, or you can spend all this money trying to market and do whatever and hope you know, and it's just, it's an absolute ghost town for the first six months. And you just, you should just boss somebody, you know, because it's not, these things don't trade it 10 times earnings. These are three to five times earnings businesses and, and they're businesses where there's not an owner of a small scrap yard that does not steal from himself. So there's always materials that come in that seem to not go out where it's like, oh, well, he saw, he's selling all his electric motors cash. Well, I'm not going to pay him. So there's, you know, income is always underreported in these businesses because the guys take cash. I mean, it's just, if you're running a four or $5 million a year scrapyard, you're scraping some amount of cash out of that business from some guy somewhere in some commodity, because that's just how these guys are. And I tell them every time, look, you've already been paid for that. I can't pay you for that. You got paid for that. You cheated the government. You did whatever. That's fine. But, but I, I'm not paying you for it. Well, not to mention they probably, they probably all have environmental problems. Yeah, they do. So we're in that business, right? So it's like, we've got a pretty old on, on what it takes to get, get comfortable around, around those issues, but it's, yes, they do almost without fail. I don't think we've ever bought one that doesn't. It just sounds like a great deal. Like the, the, there's not a ton of risk. I mean, you can run it. I guess there's operational risk, but like you got a built-in set of customers. They're pretty diverse. They're not making new ones. I mean, it sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and honestly, there are businesses that are harder and easier, right? Like our contracting business is a hard business. I mean, we're running a hundred plus people in four different states and they're, you know, broken English and lots of coordination and, you know, the recycling, I mean, I got six or eight people a yard. They come to the same place every day, deal with mostly the same customers every day, put it, the stuff in the same box. And the, I mean, it's just comparing a Burger King to doing last mile distribution or something, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just so much easier. There's so many fewer moving parts and you don't make as much money. There's not as much margin in easy businesses, but man, I mean, it's, it's easier in almost every way. I, mean, I know you're looking at that metal business, some of the other stuff. And I'll tell you, I think, you know, having that sort of, everybody comes to the same place every day, mostly doing the same thing sort of measuring production. And I mean, it's just a, we closed two weeks ago. So I'm 10% owner of a metal fab facility in Waltham, Mass. So there you go. Yeah. The guys operating it, they're drinking for the fire hose right now. So, but it's great. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, this is like 40 year old business and like, you know, everything's on paper and they're just trying to figure out which end is up. So they're, they're doing well though. They're good operating. So, uh, you were the guy that got me like first LP investing, right? Limited partner investing. So tell me what you're seeing in that market now. 
the bulk of like over half of the stuff that I've done been real estate related stuff. And that's been, uh, I mean, the sort of country clubbed up real estate stuff, the syndicated real estate stuff, the, I mean, we've done very little in the last 12 months. We're trying to put what money we can back to work in our businesses like you, I'm sure. And, and when that sort of, when that bucket kind of becomes, you know, full for me, the LP stuff is, is twofold. One, I'm not a public markets guy. I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like I'm smart enough. I don't know that game. I don't, I'm not an insider in anything having to do with a public company. Right. I mean, I'm just, I'm a guy that would just be buying like indexes or whatever. Like, well, the indexes are good. I mean, they can they provide diversification. Yeah. Right. And I think that's fine. But you know, for me, I, I like stuff that's like, hey, look, we're going to go buy this trailer park in Huntsville, Alabama. And I know the guys that are doing it. I know the guys that are operating it. I sort of, you know, and the thing I really like about it for me personally is just you're putting money to sleep. Like you're not getting that money back. It's gone. And it may come back to you five years later. It may just be a dividend. But like the public stuff is too liquid. I don't want to be able to go out and buy a car. Buy, I, I want it gone. I want it away from my greedy hands that might spend it on something. The alternative stuff is a liquid and you get a little bit of a premium for it being a liquid, but you also, you also don't blow it on stuff. Yeah. Well, here's my problem though. I would assume you're still seeing LP deals. So my sort of minimum return profile is like, if I don't think I can get 15% sort of IRR on deal, I just don't think it's worth, you know, I'll just sit on the cash. And what, what's happened is money has become, you know, equity has become a lot more valuable in every sense. And it's, you're getting a lower return on it because they can't leverage it in the same way. So you, you, you know, it's this weird intersection of, Hey, your, your dollars are worth a lot more, except the problem is we can't promote them in the same way. And you're actually going to get a lower return for putting this money at risk. And, you know, we, I just haven't seen much that's. Yeah. I just feel like the private markets don't correct in any kind of near time frame. So like, you're looking at, you're looking at like an apartment REIT and it's down now it's not down now, but it was down 50%. And you're still seeing the same freaking terms from a year before on a, on a multifamily, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the stuff that I see constantly that I think is interesting is, you know, hey, we're buying this at a at a discount to replacement. We're buying this at 50% of what it would cost. It's like, yeah, that's great. But I feel like that's sort of the, the office argument I see out there all the time is, hey, if you had to build this today, it costs 200 bucks a foot and we're getting it for 40. It's like, yeah, but... It doesn't have any income and nobody wants, you know, like, well, who cares? Like, what are you going to do with a building that's, you know, it, it feels salesy. Like the PE guys got a line from headquarters and they just use that all over and over and over again, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think I, I do, I do still believe there's just a ton of money sitting around waiting, waiting for some, yeah, waiting for some kind of distress that just hasn't really materialized. So you're not doing that trailer park. The group that I do that with, they haven't bought one asset this year. They tied up to, I mean, in last year in 2022, I think they bought nine, 23, they bought zero. They did a land deal we did, which I think was a good deal um, outside of Texas. That was just like, they found a good basis on some land when they were hunting around for something else. And they're going to flip that next year to a home builder. So, I mean, they're still doing some opportunistic stuff out there, but it's just, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, they're off 90%, 95% from where they were a year ago from a deal. And, you know, I, I've got a guy that, does the multifamily sort of capital market stuff in Atlanta for CBRE. I mean, they're, they're off 90%. All those people that live on transactions, commercial real estate transactions. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're dying. It's like the largest delivery of multifamily across the country in like 40 years over the next 12 months. I was just like, I'm not investing in this. Yeah. I'll tell you the one interesting deal that I wish I'd gotten in on these guys out of Birmingham. And I can't remember the name of the group. I will remember it at some point. 
during this call. But anyway, they're they're going to these multifamily guys and basically saying, look, we see a lot of demand for temporary corporate housing, like these traveling nurses, these whatever, like, and we want to take 10% of what you, of your brand new product that's coming online. And we're going to pay you an above market rent split. And we're going to do sort of the management of filling these units up with shorter term tenants. And, you know, most of those multifamily guys pro forma lease ups in the nineties. Well, this kind of fills that last gap to get them over the edge. And the guy that's out there doing the marketing of this product, the only thing he's in these units for is furniture and advertising. Like it's all rev share. So it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's just like the Regis we work where we work went out and signed all these leases and Regis just does a rev share. These guys are doing the same thing on temporary corporate housing with all this glut of new multifamily that's coming online. And, and they're having some real success with it, man. I mean, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, because there's, it's an asset zero business essentially outside of some FF and E costs. That was one that I wish I'd gotten in on earlier and had an opportunity to do. So then how do you manage liquidity then if you're putting all your money into private untappable? Well, I mean, we have a certain amount of money that we got to keep for our core businesses, you know, the core capital stuff. So we keep got to keep your two months capital because of our, we actually do a little bit more than that because I just, am, you know, conservative on, I think that's. I like my people more than, than 60 days worth of, uh, worth of paying them. But then we got the stuff that we sort of allocate for the, for the following year that we think we're going to be able to put to work within our business. You know, this year we bought a bunch of equipment for the recycling business, stuff like that. And then you've got excess dollars that, you know, if you're, if you're profitable and you, you know, you kind of know that on a monthly quarterly basis, I might hit, you know, you've got the calls, you kind of see where, but one thing that's, that's really tough about the demo space and all these contracting businesses, and hopefully you're bad business, you've got a better sort of revenue cycle management than we do. But I mean, our day sales outstanding is over 60, like not including retainage always. So if we have some good months and bill a few million dollars a month, I mean, you're, the cost of running this business is financing receivables. You know, I mean, we're a bank. What did you say DSO was? It's over 60 days. For us, every day is worth about 80 grand of cash flow. It's a big, you know, I mean, if we can just get that down to 50, we've have an eight, extra $800,000 that showed up in cash from 60, you know, so it's, I mean, it's a real, you know, managing your cash, as Greg likes to say, you only get to run out of it once. It's a real thing. And honestly, as you grow, that's the biggest cost of growth is just, hey, can I fund this next job? you know, out of current cash flow, we have to borrow money because we're making money. Yeah, it's a chart out of uh, simple numbers where he's got like profitability level. And like day sailed out 10, it shows you how long it takes you to get your money out. And it starts getting up. But if you're at 10%, you got like 60 days plus, it's like two years. It's like crazy. And the metal fab, it's better. I mean, there's, there, you get some up front. You're getting some deposits, some midterm. Yeah. Cause there's like equipment and stuff, you know, like materials and stuff like that. So, well, you're making a product, right? I mean, you're selling a product, like an installment sale kind of thing. Yeah. And then you can kind of play with like how much of the product you're going to get. You know, cause you got like volume purchasing you want to do and you know, the client's going to maybe do it for multiple times. So you are holding some inventory potentially, but you know, there's a little game there and we're, we're new. So we're going to be working on optimizing that, but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I should be, instead of going into the markets, I should be plowing my money into more metal fed facilities or something like that. I mean, look, if you're disciplined and don't spend your money and you know, the opportunities will come and I, you know, that's for us, it's like, if you told me 10 years ago, you know, we have four scrap yards and all this other stuff going I, I, you know, it's just, it's, you know, to your point, you, you, you kind of set a bar and then the bar becomes meaningless three to four years later, if you keep pushing and, you know, you just kind of move it all the time, you know? And it's like, everybody's got a number when they're 25. I just had a discussion with some IYPO forum mates and it was like, 
what's your number, right? Like, what's this num mythical number that you'd like sell everything and walk away? And my point is always like, every time I get close to it, like the number goes up. <laughs> so it's like, there is no number, right? There's a guy on my forum that, that makes $120 million a year. His company makes $120 million a year. And the guy works harder than anybody I know. Like if I called him 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday, he'd be looking at something having to do with his, I mean, it just, there is no. It can't quiet the brain, right? Yeah, it's just how the guy's built, man. I mean, he just, there, there's no, if you wrote him a check for whatever, he'd be doing something else the following day. I mean, there, it wouldn't be like, oh, well, now I'll go to the beach. It'd just be like, no, now I'm just going to work on something else for 80 hours a week. Yeah, I was just talking to a buddy who exited. He's in EO with me, and he exited a couple of years ago in my industry. And like, you know, he's back operating some company, and he's got like all these investments. And like one of his points on the number, too, was like, yeah, you're going to get a number and then you're still going to go make money because that's who you are. That's what you do, right? You're not going to stop. If you're a shark, you can't stop swimming, right? So then you got to think like eventually, like what's all the money for? So if you are a young person, go seek out Sam's kids and definitely seek a marriage because Sam's not spending all the money. So what are you seeing like economy wise? Like what? I mean, I, I saw the Fed, you know, like looks like we're going right back up. Like they going to cut rates next year and. I feel like there's still tons of cash around. And I made a little meme on Twitter about Jerome Powell saying, am I long, am I long monkey JPEGs? You're damn right. You know? So I feel like we're about to go into this reacceleration. What's your, what's your take? You know, it's interesting. So I was, we just did our annual sort of planning and I always kind of try to pull just sort of like, Hey, here's the macro stuff that that's happening. And some of the things that I thought were interesting just for sort of our contracting side of our business was manufacturing year over year spend was up 72%. 72%. 72%. Unbelievable. That was in, where did you get that? In the U.S. Uh, so ISRI publishes all these stats. I can send it to you, but it's, it's the scrap metal recyclers. They post a bunch of um, sort of industry stats on, because they're looking at like what's, who's consuming raw materials, right? And construction. And if you look at steel mills, construction's like almost half of the material they're producing. So they track that stuff pretty close. But overall construction spending was up 5% year over year. This year for us was a pretty flat year. A lot of that is because of the markets that we play in. And, you know, I feel pretty fortunate that we're in the Southeast. I think it's a good place to be, generally good population growth, all those kind of things. And we're projecting for, you know, next year, Hopefully we're, we're flat to up a little bit. And I think it's interesting because the, the scrap business, I could tell you right now, if you give me sort of a rough band of where commodity prices are going to fall, I mean, our, our operating costs are almost 100% fixed. I mean, the only thing we don't know is what are we selling this stuff for next month? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I'm selling. I, I can lock, lock a load of copper in today at 388. I'd wait two days later, it could be 350. Same material, same cost, same everything I've got in it. And, you know, it's off 30 cents. And so, you know, that business, I can tell you how much we're going to spend internally next year on on our overhead and everything. And I can, I can, I can come up with a, a really narrow band. On the demo side, we make all our money on four or five jobs a year. Four or five really good jobs. We had a really good, big demo job, you know, an insurance cleanup job or whatever. And, you know, that'll be... 30% of our net income for the year. It is a very cowboy business, man. A hundred percent. I mean, it's just, you got to buckle up because you don't know what you're getting. It's not, there's no, nothing consistent about it. I complain about my business, but it's like that. My business is nice, big, steady contracts, right? But when you lose one, it sucks because you go way down, but. And I'll tell you that. So, you're, you, so there's different slices of the demo business. There's guys like us that are 
kind of like middle players. I mean, some of the bigger, bigger guys get some of these bigger utility level contracts, stuff like that. They have a lot more visibility. They can tell you a lot better than I can, you know, sort of what, what they look like 12 months from now. But, you know, from a macro standpoint, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, everybody's seems to have on the private side, you know, wh what I will tell you is when I look at our contracting business, you know, we used to ask, when is the job going to start? That was really important to us because we want to schedule, we want to do ever. Now the question that we're asking is, where are you getting your money? Are these public dollars? Is this a tax credit deal? Because if it's that kind of stuff, it's probably going to go. Hey, am I trying to go get a 65% loan from Synovus to build a multifamily deal? I'm not going to spend a lot of time pricing that job because it is much more important now, is this capitalized than do you want to do it? So you're seeing like what percentage of the projects are public money? Over half of our business has a non-market dollar tied to it now, which is very uncommon for us. But you mean non-market by public? I'm saying state, federal, local, insurance, military, like something that's either public or not a private dollar where you went out and put a pro forma together. Would you include tax, tax credit kind of stuff in that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tax credit deals. I mean, some of them are combos, right? Where it's like, Hey, you know, we're getting light tech dollars and we're, you know, like your affordable housing deal, like there's some loan, but that deal doesn't happen if you don't have the public support, right? And that's what we're seeing is like more than 50% of the work that we're doing now, what I'm calling non-market work. So to me, this is a pretty significant thing, right? So like, basically we have the government kind of like propping up the economy. They're paying for my house right now. That's how I'm looking at it. I mean, the, you know, the US government, and the thing is they, they announce all these giant we're going to spend $7 trillion on this infrastructure bill. Well, that, that takes six, seven years to get out. We're in year what, two or? Well, to be honest, it takes them, takes them two years to get it ready, a year and a half to go from that to getting it initially out. And then it goes out over multiple years, right? So yeah, seven years. Wall Street seems to suck that information in and sort of, you know, absorb it and pretty quickly. But Main Street, I mean, we have to actually see the dollars, right? And there's a lot of dollars still sloshing around out there. I think that's interesting that so much of the economy is tied up in that. Like, what's the implication of that going forward, right? Well, I know that's your business all the time, right? I mean, you're you're sort of rolling and dying by the government sword. For us, it's been sort of like a bonus. And I will tell you, like, like we're doing a job right now in Sandy Springs, which is a suburb of Atlanta, and it's for the Sandy Springs Police Department. Well, that's all public dollars, but we're doing it for a private contractor that we do a lot of work for. So we're seeing private contractors that didn't used to do a lot of that kind of work pivoting hard into, oh, well, we're going to do a police department rebuild now because we need something to do. Uh, these guys that are doing these million square foot warehouses aren't doing them. And now we're going to go build Sandy Springs' new police headquarters. No, I think the government, I mean, the government side is good. Obviously it helped us. Like we grew a lot this last year and it was kind of like a year delayed after they allocated the money. I don't see a ton of growth in that market. I think it's just steady. I mean, the worry is we go back to like a 2014, 15 when we had sequestration, but I don't know, man, like I don't see like Trump cutting budgets, right? I mean, the guy's hasn't met something he didn't want to spend money on. And, and Biden obviously is not going to, I mean, I guess if you get Biden with an all Republican Congress, maybe you'd have something, but I don't know. I'm feeling like at least it's steady state for the next three to five years. Well, and, and I mean, your, your contract timelines are long enough to give you some decent visibility. It's really good. I mean, the big downside of it is when you lose one contract, it's a big, like, like you got a big back office to maintain all this crap. Right. And so like, you can lose 25% of your revenue, 30% of your revenue in one action, right? And then you can't cover your back office. And like, I was talking to guys got like $150 million GovCon business. 
and they got like a $50 million BPA, they got to win or else, you know, it's not going to look good. You know, it's just like, shit, it never goes away, right? So, but granted, it's it's a lot better to be like, hey, I got X amount locked in for at least three years. It's awesome. I was curious because like on the, going back to that managing liquidity, like the thing I've started seeing, this guy, uh, Twitter, he's doing something where he sweeps all cash. Like he he basically uses his line of credit to manage in and out. And he keeps all his cash outside the business or in like a separate account where they're making money off of the spread over on uh, short-term treasuries. So I've been thinking about trying to do that, but but now I'm starting to see like treasury rates, you know, they're going to cut next year. So that's going to be like a bad play after a while. Well, I mean, what else are you seeing out there? I mean, what's the, I, I can tell you this, we, we just, when we just bought all this equipment for the first time ever on a term sheet that I've ever um, borrowing against fixed asset, kind of lending the fixed rate option was lower than the floating rate option. That's how much they think rates are going down next year. I wonder if that's going to happen in like SBA, but I think they have to, maybe they have to be. I don't know, but that's, I mean, I, I literally have never seen that. Yeah, that is kind of crazy. I mean, I don't know. Like, I just think like the whole bank thing is changing. Well, so I, I'm, I'm in this like transition period because like my, my take going into like this week was we're going to have high rates for the next year and a half. And there are all these PE companies that took out float, you know, rate that you know, a debt that's going to adjust. And like, we really haven't seen the wall of maturities and that was going to happen. Then there are going to be a bunch of bankruptcies and everyone's going to freak out. And all this dry powder was going to disappear because the LPs were going to be like, you're never raising for me again if you deploy my money. So that that was sort of my take. And now I'm like, what the hell's going to happen? Like they, I think Powell just said off to the races, right? So if we have declining interest rates, I mean, even a couple of points, a couple hundred basis points is going to, it's going to reignite everything, right? Borrowing comes back and like that local banks are better off in that. Everybody talks rates, 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 rates. I mean, when we did our facility three years ago, it was 125 or 150 basis point spread. This this most recent loan was 275 basis points in spread. So spreads have, it's not just rates. I mean, when people, like the banks are building in, I mean, they've doubled, they've more than doubled their spreads on a lot of stuff. And so if spreads are still 125 basis points, then people can live with that. But when they're 300, it just, I don't know why nobody, I, I just feel like that just never gets discussed. It's like, hey, these banks have widened out in a way that if they feel like rates are stable to declining going into the next cycle, you're going to start to see these spreads compress again. And that's going to help a ton um, with people getting deals done. You know, that's interesting because that's exactly the opposite of what's happening in the public market. So the credit spreads have been narrow. So that's interesting. So like in this, in this sort of like private market, because yeah, I guess we just did this SBA deal, but I haven't like been out on the market for debt in a while. Well, I hadn't, well, I hadn't either until, until we wanted to buy this equipment. And then I was like, man, this, I was just, yeah, check this out. So this is, this is the high yield spread and like, obviously peaking here, but like, it's going way down. So there's a big disconnect there. And that's like, that's like a, uh, high yield is going to be a rated public company, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so that makes me like a little more uncertain about next year. Like maybe it's time to be giving out fixed rate debt to people. That's probably what you should be doing, right? And then you're going to have like declining rates. Can you get equity-like returns with a debt-like profile? And I think there's guys out there that that are doing that. And that's, you know, that's been a long time since you've been able to do that. 
but does that go away next year when you start seeing a declining rate environment or are people still going to need sort of this non-bank capital to keep going? I think so. Cause here, here's my take is like, I think we're going to probably ignite inflation again. I think like they might not raise rates that much, but in an election year. So I think, but I think you're going to have inflation going up and, um, I think that the banks are permanently, I mean, they're going to do better, right? But I think because of what happened with SVB and everything, they're permanently going to sit on top of these guys, the regulators. So I think, I think you're going from whatever, 3,500 to 1,500 banks and they're going to do, they're going to be less active. And, you know, up until a couple months ago, the only banks I saw doing anything were, were doing SBA stuff, right? So so I think private credit's here to stay. I mean, that's that's going to be the market mostly for anybody who has an SBA. And and they're going to take down their, no way they're going to allow them to take up their commercial real estate portfolios for a long time, right? So I don't know. I just, I see it probably, I see capital saying relatively scarce and I don't see rates going like way, way down. And if they're getting 275 spread, that's... Right. I mean, that's on me. There's probably people that are getting better than that, but you know, that's... uh. That's on a no PGs. I mean, that's a very, there's risk in there for them, for sure. You have a pretty asset heavy business. We do. Yeah. The real estate's a big part of it because you have to, you know, for the recycling, not owning the real estate is a big risk. You know, like we've talked about, if for some reason you get non-renewed or whatever, you don't have a business. It's not like you can just go build another Burger King, you know? I mean, you're just, you're not going to be able to do it. That's why we bought the metal fab building too. I mean, well, I was saying, I mean, if you got to go relocate all that equipment and try to find some way, it's like, it's just, it's almost like, Hey, I don't even think it's worth doing. Yeah. Right. And this equipment is so old. Like, I don't, I don't know if you could move it. Like it would just fall apart. So that's it. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I was thinking about it. I was like, yeah, well, it'd be attracted to buy a bunch of these and consolidate them. But I don't know if we could even do that. I don't know if we could do it. I mean, I think we're just going to have to have a bunch of different buildings and do that, you know? So how's flying going? So Sam's pilot as well. But why don't you tell us what happened to you in Houston? We had a uh, a midair collision in Houston. There was a couple of Part 135 charter pilots and a Hawker that took off on an intersecting runway without a clearance and clipped the tail of the plane off on our uh, on our little. What did that feel like? They were going about 120 miles an hour. We were going about 80 miles an hour, and fortunately. It only caught about, you know, 36 inches of the tail. Um, it didn't get into the engines or the fuel or the, so, we, I mean, all things considered, I don't know, it's one of those things where you're just very lucky to be alive. Cause if you get in, you know, the, the wings are where the fuel is. So if you get yeah. too far into that wing, you got a bomb. And I mean, it was, uh, it's one of those things that should, shouldn't happen. And so is a plane totaled or is it repairable? How large is it going to be? Because it's, you know, there's the tough thing about planes is, you know, the, you have a diminution of value of anywhere from 20 to 30 percent once a plane's been in like a serious incident and they don't make that particular aircraft anymore uh it's a legacy aircraft and so there are no parts to they, they all have to be made and some of them are like 400 days out for production because they don't even have the tools to make the part to make so it's just it's a whole mess and it'll you know hopefully it gets worked out and you know we're back flying around again but Oh man, Sam's grounded. That's tough. It's tough, man. I've been making do. All right. Well, I got to hop, but this is awesome. Cool to catch up, Sam. Talk soon. Bye, man. You've been listening to the Small Business Mentor Podcast, brought to you by Alan Pence. For more insights on how to navigate your business through its black holes, visit at A Pence on X. 
Don't forget to search for Small Business Mentor in your podcast app to subscribe. Thank you for joining us and here's to your next leap in business growth.